Backing away from the border, the Pentagon plans a drawdown of active duty forces there. Mission accomplished or something else? The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. You've heard of the wall of separation between church and state. Could the church stop a wall between Mexico and the U.S.? Also, a death at a North Texas jail turns the spotlight on untrained guards at lockups statewide. A proposed transition from an Obama-era policy stokes fear among transgender Texans. We'll hear why. And a large-scale attempt to woo migrating monarchs back to the Texas capital city. Did it fly? All those stories and a whole lot more coming up today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, you're on Texas Standard Time on this 20th day of November 2018. Thanks so much for spending a bit of your Turkey Week Tuesday with us. We're very grateful indeed. I'm David Brown. Was thinking about something this morning. I recall, it seems like centuries ago almost, critics were raising a question about the president surrounding himself with military leaders as he assembled and shuffled his White House team, remember? What a difference a midterm makes. Over the weekend, as you've surely heard by now, the president opened fire on the military's architect of the raid that resulted in the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011. Admiral William McRaven, who has serious Texas ties, most recently as former chancellor of the University of Texas system, has in the past protested over the president's remarks about the press as the enemy of the people, calling such remarks the greatest threat to American democracy he'd ever witnessed. Then on Sunday, Mr. Trump upped the war of words, suggesting McRaven should have caught bin Laden faster. The New York Times reports today that colleagues and commanders are rallying to McRaven's defense. But in considering the complicated relationship between Mr. Trump and the military, consider the messages we're now getting about Mr. Trump's order sending active duty troops to the border. Politico reports the Army chief commanding those forces is saying a drawdown of border troops could begin as early as this week. But it's a different story back in Washington, one that Tara Kopp is covering for Military Times, where she's Pentagon bureau chief. Tara, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. We're getting mixed signals, mixed messages on what exactly is going to happen with these troops uh, at the border. What's the latest you've been hearing? So mixed messages is right. Um, the commanding general for the forces on the ground had suggested in a Politico story or perhaps was misinterpreted in a Politico story that, uh, you know, some of the initial forces would be coming home in the next couple of days. The order has them uh, only runs through December 15th, and Secretary Mattis himself, when he visited last week, had suggested that you know some of the the folks that were there at the border could be coming home earlier because they had basically finished the task of putting in all this concertina wire and the Jersey barriers, and so you know they were starting to see stories of you know troops just kind of hanging around wondering what to do, and that's not a good use of anybody's resources. No, indeed. But I, as I recall, when uh, James Mattis went to the border, he was asked a question about what is the long-term strategy here? What is the mission? And he really, I mean, he didn't have a, an answer for reporters at that time, which I guess feeds into this other political narrative, right? That that this has been something of a uh, of a political stunt, I guess, is, is the way that critics uh, would characterize it. Yes, the uh, incoming chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, um, Representative Adam Smith, said as much this morning, early this morning, calling it a political stunt, calling it racially motivated, saying it was time for the, to bring the troops home. 
um, you know, it's a waste of limited resources. These are all things that uh, Democrats and critics have uh, been raising over the last several weeks, just given the, the timing of it, which, you know, this mission started just a week before the elections. Mattis was uh, was asked that very question about whether or not this was a political stunt. He got rather testy about it. He did, but he didn't give a great answer either. Um, you know, sometimes when cornered, he'll he'll have these kind of one-liners that are very catchy and they get in all the stories. He just said, we don't do political stunts, but did not go further to explain what, like you said, what's the mission, what's needed here. He wasn't able to basically discuss or describe what troops might be doing there long-term, what they would be doing there short-term. Um, apparently one soldier said, you know, are we going to have to take all this concertina wire down? Mm. For now, it looks like um, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense are considering maybe shifting troops around the initial migrant caravan of several thousand migrants instead of going towards Texas, which was the shortest destination, instead chose California. And so they have now kind of coalesced um, several thousand of them at the Tijuana checkpoint. Right. I think that there's discussions going on right now to maybe shift some of the resources that were in Texas and Arizona potentially to California. Have you heard any chatter from troops themselves? I mean, uh, I, I know that generally speaking, there's a prohibition uh, you know, against talking about deployments and that sort of thing. So secondhand, um, I have not been down to the border myself in the last couple of weeks. I was there in July. But what other reporters have uh, noted in, in their discussions with troops is that Many of them, like you said, will just kind of keep the company line. Mattis has even kind of offered them a few nuggets recently saying that this is an excellent training exercise, which, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a training exercise. It was supposed to be an operational deployment. A couple of them have noted offhand uh, they have a little bit of disbelief about the fact that they've actually done this. As you know, when Mattis was thinking about previous examples for when he had sent this many active duty forces on a domestic deployment, he had to reach back to 100 years ago when they were countering Pancho Villa's incursion into New Mexico. So this is a really extraordinary circumstance. Uh, do you have a sense that maybe the uh, uh, holidays upon us, uh, that's causing a certain reconsideration of this deployment? It's certainly not good optics. And yesterday we had a, a briefing with Pentagon spokesman and Army Colonel Robert Manning, and they did kind of the traditional outlining of Turkey's going to, you know, deployed troops. There's always the, the optic of the commander in chief serving turkeys at Thanksgiving or, you know, celebrities serving turkeys for troops that are served in, or, or in Iraq or Afghanistan. But these turkeys, a lot of them are headed to the U.S.-Mexico border where the troops that are stationed there are within eyesight of restaurants and, you know, potentially could be going home to their families instead. And so I think that there's a, a general awareness within the Pentagon that this is just not great optics. Tara Kopp is the Pentagon Bureau Chief for the Military Times. Uh, we'll link to her latest at TexasStandard.org. Tara, thanks again for speaking with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Meanwhile, the Catholic Diocese of Brownsville in the Rio Grande Valley is fighting the federal government over potential plans to build part of that much-talked-about border wall. The diocese claims that the move would be a violation of that clause in the First Amendment, sometimes referred to as the wall of separation between church and state. We caught the story in the Corpus Christi Caller Times. John Moritz covers Texas for the USA Today Network. He's been reporting on this. John, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Glad to be here. So how exactly would a church uh, stop the construction of a portion of the wall? Well, basically, uh, the bishop of the Brownsville Diocese, uh, he basically says that 
Should the federal government uh, proceed with a plan taking of the property, it would interfere with the practice of religion. What what property are we referring to here? Uh, we're talking about the Lalomita Chapel, which is one of the oldest chapels along the Rio Grande, and it was set up there by the Oblate missionaries. And so it's got some historical significance. The chapel itself was built in 1899. It's not used day to day, but it's still considered a sacred place. And the bishop believes that uh, basically taking that property would uh, interfere with the practice of religion and uh, and his ability to, to tend to his uh, his parishioners and. Uh, faith community. This is an interesting thing because, of course, we're talking about uh, there's the takings clause, which which basically means that if the government takes property, you're entitled to get some of uh, compensation for it uh, for for a fair uh, market price, I guess. And it sounds like what the church is saying is, wait a minute, there's another part of the Constitution that the government may be trampling on here. Exactly. The uh, the First Amendment uh, and the lawyer argues that 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 would trump eminent domain. You you can't interfere with anyone's um, ability to practice his or her religion. It, it just violates the First Amendment. It's, it's very interesting. Have you talked to attorneys who think that that perhaps uh, uh, the bishops may have a case here that that they can in fact stop uh, construction of of at least a, a part of the border wall? Well, the the bishops' uh, lawyer is fighting for it, but he acknowledges that it, I believe his term was we've got a rough road to hoe. Um, eminent domain cases are hard to win in his estimation, whether it's for a, a, a dam uh, on a river, uh, to widen a highway, even to build the wall. Um, the burden of proof is on that landowner that the government can't take it in. So he, he acknowledges it's an uphill fight, but it's a fight the, uh, the Catholic Diocese is going to wage. If, in fact, a wall were built, would this in any way harm the structure there at La Lomita? I mean, there's, a, there's this lovely mission and the photographs uh, there in the, in the uh, piece that we saw from the Caller Times. Well, that would remain to be seen. Right, right now, what the federal government wants to do is survey the land uh, to see if it was, would be suitable for a wall and where the wall would go. So perhaps the wall would go behind the mission, perhaps the wall would go in front of the mission. You know, that's going to be determined um, should they uh, be allowed onto the property to survey and and then finally take. So it sounds like really what this suit is about is an attempt to stop the survey from happening. That's the first step here, right? Correct. Before um, before land is taken, it's generally surveyed to see if the government really needs it, if it's going to be suitable for the purpose that it would be uh, taken for. But, you know, assuming the survey goes well, then then they would proceed with uh, actual condemnation and then, you know, they would uh, start fighting over money. Let's, I mean, it's hard to miss the irony here that if you couldn't build a wall there on that property and there were a gap, I mean, you think about how churches have played a role uh, in the uh, protection of, uh, of, of migrants to the U.S. for <laughs> many decades now. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, that irony is lost on on too many people, and and the bishop in his statement pretty much uh, refers to that as well. John Moritz has been following the eminent domain process uh, along the border for some time now for the USA Today Network. John, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us on the Texas Standard. Uh, glad to do it anytime. Time to find out what Texans are talking about on this Tuesday. Here's social media editor Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. We're hearing from our friends and listeners about the story at the top of the show. Reports of a troop drawdown at the U.S.-Mexico border after President Trump dispatched them there ahead of the midterm elections. 
Folks are also noting a somewhat related story, story, a ruling from a federal court temporarily striking down Trump's so-called asylum ban. Mm -hmm. That stated that anyone crossing the border without doing so through an official port would be ineligible for asylum. Eclecticity says, as this is Thanksgiving week, one aspect of our country that I believe should be celebrated is that people vote with their lives to join us to contribute to the wealth and wisdom of our nation and that we receive those fleeing death and despair with gracious hearts. Another story on social media about social media. As of this moment, Facebook sure acting like it's down. I'm getting that refresh wheel of death there. Mm. But So things are a little quiet, but no worry. We've got a lot going on at our Twitter feed at Texas Standard. I'll be back with more from social media later in the you show. Know, you said Facebook was down. I thought you were referring to their market price, which has well, been that plummeting. Well. Uh, late. <laughs> we would love to hear what's making news in your neck of Texas. Tweet us, won't you? At Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good. Like Dr. Kyle Walker, who uses data mapping and open source software to help organizations serve at-risk communities. TCU, lead on. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. There are several businesses that have become iconic Texas brands, among them the orange and white striped Whataburger chain that offers to prepare your order just like you like it. Does that include soft drink cups, too? Texas Public Radio's Brian Kirkpatrick says protesters turned out in three Texas cities yesterday calling for change. Members of the environmental groups Environment Texas and Care 2 delivered a petition with 53,000 signatures to the San Antonio headquarters of the burger chain. The petition urges Whataburger to stop using the cups to serve its customers in 10 states. Protesters also turned out at Whataburger's in Corpus Christi in Austin, where Daniel Ramirez says it's time for the company to act. We choose with our dollars, and we do love Whataburger. We just do want to represent the fact that these changes are very much necessary, and that at the end of the day, it's a grassroots momentum that we need to get everybody on board for. And I think there's some changes that are very suitable for everybody in this related cause. They say the cups can sit for thousands of years in landfills, litter roadways and waterways, and are a threat to wildlife when mistaken for food. The groups say McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts announced plans in the past year to stop using styrofoam cups. Whataburger says it will continue to look at cup alternatives that keep drinks at the right temperature, but they have a lot to consider from a quality and supply perspective when meeting customer expectations. In the meantime, Whataburger urges customers to properly dispose of its cups. For the Texas Standard, I'm Brian Kirkpatrick. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Christmas Eve 2016. A man in a jail near Fort Worth is pepper-sprayed as guards pile on top of him to pin him down, making it hard for the inmate to breathe. Before Christmas morning, 38-year-old Andy DeBusk would be dead. According to a Dallas Morning News investigation, DeBusk was coming down from meth when he was put in the Parker County Jail. An autopsy report says those actions taken by the jail guards contributed to his death. 
The investigation reports that some of those guards had not gone through a state-mandated program to become a trained guard, something that's not altogether uncommon in Texas jails. Dave Boucher is an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News. He's been working on this story along with Dallas Morning News reporter Carrie Aspinwall. Dave, thanks for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Uh, first off, what happened when Andy DeBusk died? Why did this happen in the first place? Why were they pepper spraying him? Officers decided that DeBusk was becoming combative in his cell. Um, he was throwing a mattress around and, and putting water around in the cell. They entered the cell. There's an allegation that he took a swing at an officer. It's unclear whether or not he hit the officer. Uh, and so guards rushed in. They pepper sprayed him in the cell. And then we obtained video that shows him after he has been handcuffed and after his feet are shackled together. As you noted, guards are piling on top of him. He's screaming, I can't breathe. And they are continuing to restrain him. Why was he in, in the lockup in the first place? What was the backstory there? So DeBusk had had some problems with, with drug addiction. He had gotten his life straight for about a decade. He had created a successful small business and raised a son, but he had kind of fallen off the wagon after his marriage fell apart. And so he had been in and out of jail recently on a matter of, of small um, small violations of probation and parole, just, just issues that result in him continuing to have to come in, um, like failing to charge a monitoring device. So he was back in jail after a couple of brushes of the law on relatively small uh, issues. Why, why would guards pile on top of uh, someone who seemed to be, uh, what, was he acting erratic? Was he threatening the guards? What was going on? They said that they thought in, in the Texas Rangers report, guards said that they thought he would be inciting other inmates and that he was being disrespectful to the officers and that they have a policy that they move these uh, offenders who are being agitated to something they call the violent tank. So somewhere they would put somebody to kind of cool out. Again, it's unclear exactly how he was agitating other guards he, or, or other inmates. He was in a cell by himself. But the officers decided they wanted to move them, and the encounter escalated rapidly. So these guards, as you report, had not gone through training requirements from the state. How common is that? So several of the officers involved uh, had what's called a temporary license. And in Texas, you're allowed to work for up to a year in a jail on this temporary license. Uh, you have to meet all the parameters for becoming a, a guard, pass high school, be able to drive a car. But you don't have to go through the 96 hours of state-mandated training. We discovered through state records that anywhere from 4,000 to 5,000 temporary licenses are issued every year. Uh, again, you can work for up to a year on that license, but it's, it's not uncommon for somebody to work past a year. We talked to a training director who said that it's uh, a huge liability for jails to employ someone past that year deadline, and it's also illegal. These jails can face a $1,000 per day fine if they employ somebody past this temporary license, although big fines rarely happen. Why does this one-year loophole exist in the first place? So there are arguments that rural jails or jails that are away from a, a large work pool have trouble finding people. You know, it's a, it's a different type of environment, as an official with LaSalle, the company that operates the jail, said, and it can be tough to employ people. And so the system is in place, in theory, to allow people to get in, see if they understand the, the correctional system, and see if this is something they want to do. And if they do that, if they do want to be a part, then they can go through the training. I talked to a jail administrator elsewhere who said he likes to employ temporary jailers so they can come in and actually see what it's like to be in a jail before they commit to the licensure process. Any repercussions from the death of Andy DeBusk? I mean, what, what happened to the guards and, and what, do, what about DeBusk's family? What do they have to say about all this? So it's important to note that the local uh, district attorney brought the case along with the Texas Rangers to a grand jury. The grand jury chose not to indict any of the officers involved. 
Many of the officers have since moved on. As I said, it's kind of a transient business. There's a revolving door of officers in and out. But the family has filed a lawsuit against the jail operator, LaSalle Corrections, the private jail company, alleging negligence. The company kind of declined to comment on the actual um, case itself. But for the family, they're, they're heartbroken. You know, they had considered uh, bailing Andy out of jail on, on that night that he died and decided in a, in a moment of tough love to leave him in jail overnight, let him sober up a little bit. You know, they didn't want to uh, have him kind of interrupt this this Christmas Eve tradition that they had at their house, and they're they're torn up about it now. They think that maybe if they had bailed him out, something differently might have happened. Forgive me for asking a dumb question, but we're talking about a company. This is the Parker County Jail. Why is it that a company is is um, is is sending in guards and not? Why aren't these county employees? So throughout Texas and actually throughout the country, there are private prison operators who also operate. ICE detention facilities, and in this case, county jails. Counties have determined that it could be cheaper to have somebody come in and administer a jail as opposed to the county itself running a jail. So we found that certain counties like Dallas, the cost of operating the jail is somewhere around $70 per inmate per day, whereas this company like LaSalle has offered to operate jails in other counties for as little as $30 or less per inmate per day. Let me just put it to you bluntly. Is cost-cutting in Texas jails causing deaths? I think that that's a question that counties may have to grapple with. I think that there's also questions about liability. You could argue as a county that if there are going to be issues within a jail and that if you could be held liable for an in-custody death, that it could be some form of a liability shield to have a private company operating this jail. So if somebody dies and a private operator is the one who has the contract for a jail, then the private operator is sued. And in theory, they take over all liability for that case. But there are questions about whether privatization of the you know, incarceration of human beings is leading to lax accountability or lax training or safety issues. I've been speaking with Dave Boucher, uh, along with reporter Carrie Aspenwald, covering this story for the Dallas Morning News. We'll link to it at texasstandard.org. Dave, thanks so much for speaking with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Nearly two weeks after the 2018 midterms, Democrat Gina Ortiz-Jones conceded Monday to Republican incumbent Will Hurd in the race for the state's 23rd congressional district. Texas Public Radio's Carson Frame reports. The race between Jones and Hurd wasn't called on election night, and it seemed headed for a recount. Jones argued that the nearly 700 votes that separated her and Hurd made the race too close to call. She pushed to make sure all provisional, military, and mail-in ballots had been counted. Jones also sued Bear County for a list of provisional ballots and asked for more time to see them validated. But a judge denied the extension. After election results were canvassed in Medina County and across the district, Jones released a statement saying, quote, While we came up short this time, we ran a race of which we can be proud. She also wished her the courage to fight for District 23, which stretches from San Antonio to El Paso. Carson Frame, Texas Public Radio News. 
Black voters were key to Democratic gains during this year's election. That's according to a survey the African American Research Collaborative conducted for the NAACP and Advancement Project. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports the study looked at polling of black voters in six key states, including Texas. Black voters were the most reliable voting bloc for Democrats this year as the party won a majority in the U.S. House. According to the Research Collaborative Report, 90 percent of black voters supported Democratic House candidates. That's compared to just 53 percent of all voters. Researcher Judith Brown Dianis says black women were particularly important for Democrats this year. They get it. Black women are turning out. They are strong when they turn out. They know who they want to support. And they understand Trumpism. Black women were also more likely to say they felt disrespected by President Trump than black men. And it appears Democrats were working to tap into that voting potential. Many black voters reported being contacted by campaigns this year. In the Texas Senate race, black voters overwhelmingly said they were voting for Democrat Beto O'Rourke. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Texas is asking a federal appeals court to uphold a state law requiring the burial of fetal remains from miscarriages, abortions, and ectopic pregnancies. That's regardless of a woman's wishes or beliefs. Attorney General Ken Paxson wants the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to overturn a lower court ruling that found this 2017 law unconstitutional. U.S. District Judge David Ezra said Senate Bill 8 created substantial obstacles for women, doctors, and abortion clinics while offering no health benefits. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler Cluffin Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. BaronAdler.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. The New York Times reports the Trump administration plans to, quote, redefine transgender out of existence, close quote. The story references a memo leaked from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services last month proposing to establish a legal definition of sex under Title IX. That's the federal law that prohibits sex-based discrimination in federally funded educational programs. The draft proposal would define sex as the one assigned at birth. On this Transgender Day of Remembrance and International Observation honoring the memory of those whose lives were lost in acts of anti-transgender violence, Alexia Puenta looks at the impact the proposed legal change could have on transgender students. Emily Bogue attends Texas State and is the president of the student group Transcend. Bogue says one reason the leaked draft is concerning is that many public school districts already don't know how to accommodate transgender students. They are often restricted from participating in athletics or using the locker room of their choice. It's unaffirming and it, it reinforces these transphobic systems that view trans people as invalid or as liars or as anything other than the gender that they identify as. This new definition of sex under Title IX could also put these students at risk. A recent study found LGBTQ students are two to three times more likely to be physically assaulted or threatened at school than their peers. Bogue has heard of cases where a transgender girl who is forced to use a boys' locker room is left vulnerable to severe bullying. Under this interpretation of Title IX, that girl then doesn't have recourse to go to the school and say, hey, my Title IX rights are being violated. LGBT activist Paige Schilt says transgender discrimination prevents these students from receiving an adequate education. 
Glisten is an organization working to create safe and inclusive schools. It recently found in a survey that many LGBT students avoid school because they're afraid for their safety, and oftentimes they have no one to turn to. The connection between learning outcomes and discrimination is not really complicated or abstract. It's very hard to concentrate in class if you feel that you're being threatened or devalued or you can't take care of your basic needs. The negative experiences of transgender youth causes negative mental health problems that can continue into their adult lives. Individuals in the LGBTQ community have higher rates of substance abuse, self-harm, and suicide compared to heterosexuals. Emily Bogue is familiar with these statistics. When you stifle trans people's right to express themselves and when you fail to affirm their gender identities, those depression rates spike. Those rates of violence spike. Those rates of self-harm and suicide spike. This is actively harmful. This is a thing that hurts people and this is a thing that will get people hurt. Texas State student and Transcend Secretary Nicolo Desi says for those reasons, Many transgender college students are already worried about their future. Now, the leaked draft from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has increased their concern over things like employment prospects and medical services. Desi says that's leading many to feel they should rush to transition, and that creates an extra level of mental and financial stress. We're kind of frenzied to be like, okay, well, let's get these legal name changes. Let's get these surgeries done before we can't. That panic isn't for no reason. LGBTQ violence and bullying isn't limited to school kids. Overall, the transgender community faces among the highest rates of violence and systematic discrimination of any population in the United States. In 2017, the human rights campaign tracked 29 deaths of transgender people in the U.S. due to violence. The number has been on the rise the last few years, and that was the most ever recorded. It's always been hard for trans people facing discrimination, but now there's a sort of validity to it coming from the government, even without there being a concrete policy in place. Schultz says this year's Transgender Day of Remembrance is going to be especially meaningful as it will create a place to come together and connect and recognize each other's humanity and worth as people. A lot of the activism in response to the Trump memo has been around this hashtag won't be erased. And I think that's part of the legacy of Transgender Day of Remembrance already is to not just let these lives that have been lost, oftentimes lives of trans women of color, to just fade from the historical record and be erased. Bogue wants people to remember that trans people have existed before the government gave them recognition and will continue to exist. She says it's important to remember how the elders of the transgender community fought without any protections and that legislation cannot force them out of existence. The work that we need to do is going to make people uncomfortable. It is how we secure our rights and how we secure our protection and how we assert to the world that, hey, no, you have to listen to us. We exist and we refuse to let you forget about us. Bogue hopes that during this Trans Day of Remembrance and moving forward, the trans community will continue to draw strength from one another, as well as their supporters and allies as they continue to do the work necessary to protect their human rights. I'm Alexia Puente for the Texas Standard.
She was eight, the year she birthed her first insecurity. When she came home and asked her mom what a unibrow was, and mama said that the unibrow was what pretty girls had, and she turned to her mom and asked, Mom, why am I the only one with my class with one? Do you remember the day that you found out that you were different? My name is Alyssa Cooper. I prefer Earl the Poet. I am a junior communications major, and I am from Houston, Texas. Over the years, I have been um, encouraged and inspired to continue writing um, because I can write my way into a better life. I can write my way into a better mood. Um, I can share my truths. And I've been inspired throughout the years to write because I grew up in a domestic violence household. And if your circumstance isn't good, you can write your way into a better one. So you'll see a reoccurring theme on my social media and in my poetry, mental illness advocacy, sexual assault, um, and women's rights, and women's empowerment, um, simply because of my story. I've been raped two times. I'm 21 now, I know what happened, I was fully aware, let me speak on it. Me too, like hashtag me too. Like, let me use my platform to share. No one knows my truth and is able to share my truth like I am. And knowing that, I'm able to walk forth and spit. Whenever I get asked why I leave my work around the city without my name on it, my vision is to touch millions of people. I can't touch millions of people if I'm always worried about getting credit for that. So I never write and say, oh, I'm going to go put it somewhere. I'm always right there at that, that space when I believe it's the spirit that says leave it. And I will leave those small buddy books and messages around to remind people. One, about childhood because I feel like as adults, we're always going very, very quickly. But if we remember that we'll never get this time back, maybe then will we stand still. I have been officially sworn in as the Houston Tillerson University's first for Laureate. This has opened up another world for me. Um, it actually feels like I'm living in a dream right now. My foundation is to continue the, the poetry promotion on my campus, but to also venture out to East Austin and figure out and find out how I can make sure poetry is talked about, poetry is written, poetry is appreciated. I am Earl the Poet, the first poor laureate at Houston Tillerson University, and you're listening to The Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver e-commerce and digital solutions designed to elevate customer engagement and revenue for mid-market companies. More at softwareispromised.com. Coming up on 44 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time, I'm David Brown. There's eating turkey, that's one thing. And then there's gnawing on a massive turkey leg with a side of haggis, watching a jousting match and comparing tunics and hoods. 
The latter activity won't happen around Thanksgiving Day tables, for the most part. But if you're looking for that sort of action, you may want to travel to an expanse of 55 acres in southeast Texas. Those in the know sometimes just call it Renfest. But the Texas Renaissance Festival, it turns out, is by some measures the largest festival of its kind. And there are many of its kind nationwide. Over half a million people flock to the site each fall, but... As this weekend marks the conclusion of this year's festivities, Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider has some words of wisdom for those wishing all the fun was more than mere fantasy. I recently drove northwest of Tombal to visit the Texas Renaissance Festival. While strolling the grounds, I came across a group of five friends, all dressed in period clothes. Bought or rented, costumes are expensive. They're usually a sign the wearers have been to the fair before. Katarina Guevara told me she keeps coming back because... It's one of the largest Renaissance festivals, I think, in the United States, and it really shows the amount of work and the authenticity, air quotes, and it's just a lot of fun to people watch. Justin Jenkins put it more simply. To drink and be merry, in costume. (laughs) Then I asked if they could travel back in time, would they want to visit the Renaissance for real? Good Lord, no. Not dysentery, (laughs) lifespan, (laughs) pass good call on their part, because there are few periods of history where the romantic image clashes more with the gritty reality. I had always wanted to time travel. If I could just go back in time to a palace, even for a day. Eleanor Herman is the author of The Royal Art of Poison, Filthy Palaces, Fatal Cosmetics, Deadly Medicine, and Murder Most Foul. And having written this book, I wouldn't do it anymore. I'd be afraid I'd come back with something really, really disgusting. Let's start with the basics. Real Renaissance villages had no indoor plumbing. Palaces like Versailles were toxic waste dumps. There were brimming chamber pots full of bacteria and parasites in just about every room. And even worse, the the courtiers routinely dropped their britches and did their business in the middle of the hall. Add in waste from the chickens, pigs, cattle, and other animals kept near or in the home for food. The people were also filthy themselves because doctors told them it was dangerous to bathe. That attracted fleas and lice, which spread more diseases. Money and social rank didn't help when you got sick. Often, they made things worse. A peasant might get a little bloodlet from the town barber, but a royal or noble with a doctor on staff would be bled over and over. And medicine... They would uh, give you uh, mercury enemas and arsenic skin cream for a rash. You didn't need a doctor to poison you either. You could do the job yourself just trying to look good. The lead in the cosmetics. Uh, Queen Elizabeth had you know, arsenic rouge and lipstick. Um, it can get into the, the human body and cause you to go crazy and, and get very ill with time. Herman got interested in the topic while researching earlier books on the Renaissance. If anyone at court died, rumors of poison started flying. And Herman found there were genuine assassinations. But if someone died because of something they ate, there was usually a simpler explanation. They cooked the food, the meat, over an open hearth. And when you do that without a temperature, without an oven, half of the meat is going to be sort of dried and burnt, and the other half is going to be raw. You could sicken and die very easily from food poisoning before they had IV drips to give you some hydration. And they would think that was poisoning because the symptoms are are quite similar. Herman lives near Washington, D.C. 
From August through October, she'll dress up in full costume and head to the Maryland Renaissance Festival to sell her latest book. She loves it. Her advice? Go to the festival, enjoy the beauty and the pageantry, eat safe food, and go home afterward without having to worry you've caught the plague. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider for the Texas Standard. Arsenic lip gloss, the plague. It's a festival, everyone. Yes, the Renaissance Festival will continue through this weekend. Check it out. Coming up on 49 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Times. A whole lot more ahead. Stay with us. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Look, up in the sky. That's no bird. That's a little butterfly. That's monarch butterflies making their way through Texas to Mexico for the winter. And along the route, a string of Texas communities have rolled out the red carpet with policies aimed at helping the monarchs all along the way. One of the most ambitious is in the Texas capital city, where, as KUT Austin's Mose Bouchelle reports, this year could turn into a big test to see how much those efforts really help. Think of Austin as a rest stop for migrating monarchs. The same way you need to fill up the gas tank in your car, monarchs need to stop along their route. In the fall, it's to fill up on the nectar from certain flowers. In the spring, they need to lay their eggs on milkweed plants. Austin has policies to grow those plants on public land. It's one of a bunch of places along the butterfly's migration path that are trying to become like little islands of refuge for butterflies. Is it working? I sent KUT intern Elizabeth Euclid down to one of these oases to see. Hello. Hey, Elizabeth, it's Mose. Hey, Mose, how's it going? It's going all right. Are you rolling? Yeah, right now I'm at the Zilker Botanical Garden, and they have a whole section dedicated just to butterflies. So there's lots of different flowers around here, and they even have a few different like dishes for the monarchs to get some nectar from. They have dishes out? Yeah, they actually have a butterfly feeder. And so they're hanging baskets and they're stocked with fruits to feed the butterflies. So I'm actually, I see a few of them in there right now, eating some of the fruit. This year, they might want to put a little extra fruit in the bowl. More monarchs are expected to fly through than any of the past 10 years. That's because of exceptionally nice weather up north, where monarchs lay their eggs on milkweed during the summer breeding season. Tiara Curry is a scientist with the Center for Biological Diversity. She says up to 180 million monarchs could fly through Texas this fall, twice the number from last year. This year is going to represent as many monarchs as we can produce with the current amount of milkweed in the absence of weather disasters. The thing is, even with the weather completely cooperating, monarch numbers are still well below the 225 million butterflies needed to stabilize the population. That's what makes this fall a true test of how much places like Austin can really help. Curry says it will show how well these little oases of food we've created can help sustain this generation of butterflies. If the fall is the limiting factor for them in terms of finding high-quality forage plants and connected habitat to um, enhance their journey south, then 
will know by the number of monarchs that make it through the winter in Mexico, if nothing goes wrong there, how many monarchs we, we can produce in a fall is the one of the primary limiting factors on the population. If a lot of monarchs don't reach Mexico, we'll know they're not finding enough food on their way. If they do, conservationists can be more confident that pit stops like the one in Austin are helping. That's especially important because things are only expected to get worse for the monarchs weather-wise, says Chip Taylor. He's the director of a group called Monarch Watch at the University of Kansas. By and large, what's going to happen uh, is that we're not going to see these favorable conditions uh, come together very often in the future. Maybe, maybe never. Uh, it depends on how fast things change out there. The change he's talking about is climate change. It's expected to bring more weather like droughts, freezes, and wildfires all up and down the monarch's range that will further threaten them. It's a reason many conservationists like Tierra Curry would prefer to see the butterflies listed as an endangered species with the protections that come along with that. That sort of comprehensive look at what it takes to save them, I think, would be very beneficial to them as opposed to cities here and there, campuses here and there. All of that is essential, but it would be awesome if there was a big coordinated response to save them. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is set to decide on whether to list the monarchs as endangered next year. But given the Trump administration's record on conservation, Curry doesn't think it will. So monarch pit stops may be the next best thing, if not to restore the species, then at least to keep it on a kind of life support in the face of growing threats. In Austin, I'm Mose Bouchel. And you were listening to The Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is our social media editor. You seen many monarch butterflies this year? Not, no, can't say. I won't lie. I've seen more this year than I've seen in many years past. Intriguing. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if some of these efforts to try to save the monarchs were helping. I mean, see the pants uh, observation here. I mean, it seems like Mm -hmm. just, I mean, I don't know. Yes, possibly so, as we just learned. You know, quite honestly, I don't really keep my eye out for butterflies. Why? But but now I will. I will, I will. You should. It's a little (laughs) bit of beauty every day. Just lovely. I am all about that. So what are Texans talking about on this Tuesday? Well, as you mentioned earlier in the show, David, today is Transgender Day of Remembrance on Twitter. The hashtag Trans Day of Remembrance is trending. Here is one of the tweets out there in Austin. Lila Sturges says, This is the day each year when we remember those trans people, mostly women of color, who have been killed for being trans. Every year in America, dozens of people are murdered simply for living as themselves. And uh, trying to uh, do a little back uh, uh, research on this, David, it appears some 22 transgender people have been killed in the U.S. this year. One of the most recent murders uh, was uh, that event that happened in Laredo where Nikki Enriquez was slain by a Customs and Border Patrol agent. I recall that story. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about here on right. the show. We did indeed. Well, also continuing to hear continuing rather to hear from folks about the show's top story reports of army troops slated to return home from the US Mexico border after President Trump dispatched them there ahead of the midterms. Eris de Suzeran says the military is leaving, but when does the National Guard go? Interesting question there because uh, the Guard had been, dis- uh, I think they've been dispatched down there for years, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. That's true. That's true. In a support function yes. was what I understand. But I think, as I understood, the reporter from the Military Times explaining it, mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, active duty personnel went down, they set up the razor wire mm-hmm. there. 
and they didn't then have another job to do. And a lot of a lot of those troops have been sort of standing there, yeah. with, you know. And I've heard similar things about the national. I think uh, part of it is legal. You know, it's like uh, the actual actions, apprehensions, all that stuff right. is limited to border patrol. Posse so it does. Comitatus, yeah. So it does raise this question yeah. of what do you do down there? Right. Well, uh, you know, anything regarding Whataburger gets folks talking. You know that, and that includes the story we heard earlier about how some environmental groups are asking them to phase out their use of styrofoam cups at their restaurants. Uh-huh. Lots of folks sounding off on this one on our Twitter page. Uh, Kendrick Ward says, I think there are way bigger fish to fry. Meanwhile, Anya Ascendant says, McDonald's has gotten rid of their styrofoam cups, and while I prefer them, I think that if getting rid of them is better for the environment, then it is a small sacrifice. Similarly, Melissa Malone says, we have to start somewhere. It's the most prevalent type of pollution in our waterways and is not easily recycled. Meanwhile, I like this suggestion mm-hmm. here from Chip Crawford. He yes. tweets, the new policy is just to spray soda at customers through the drive through window. <laughs> no, don't. And you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but like you know, that. if you are in the market for a uh, reusable one, I spotted this uh, sweet uh, Yeti tumbler that's painted up just like huh. a Whataburger cup. Yeah, there. right. Could be yours only for $45.99 oh, there. Yeah. Uh, that's from a listener. I think that's from our friend Justin who uh, tweeted that at us. But yeah, pretty I cool looking one. Well, it does look cool, but I wonder if there's styrofoam insulation, you know, and I mean, how cool well, does it work? I don't, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. know if that is a great question. How does your Yeti cooler work? Well, let's not go there. But, uh, but that is a pretty sweet looking cup, I must say. Or do you like slick. styrofoam cups when you... You know, they are effective, but, you know, there's other considerations to bear in mind as well. I don't like the thickness of a styrofoam cup. Just something about it. Anyway, uh, we're out of time, folks. Keep your suggestions coming to us at Texas Standard, or, of course, you can join the conversation. At uh, Facebook, just look up Texas Standard there in that search line. Wells Dunbar is a looking for you. He'll be back tomorrow. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific Tuesday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.